Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of the podcast. At the time of the library's opening in the early 2000s, reviewers of our collection saw three core thematic areas in them, which would be of particular relevance for contemporary seekers and scholars. They were women in leadership, particularly women in religious leadership, spiritual quest, and spirituality and health. This episode very much applies to the latter category of spirituality and healing. As part of the discussion, we will be looking at a specific event in British religious history called the 1953 to 1958 Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing, and what that undertaking by the Church of England meant for the Christian Science Church. With that as an access point, we will broaden the conversation to see how this event at the midpoint of the 20th century figured into a larger landscape of interest in spiritual or divine healing in Great Britain and globally within the greater Anglo world. So, it is with great pleasure that I introduce our guest speakers. With us is Robin Harrigan Hussey, author of the 1953-1958 Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing and the Christian Science Response. This article was published on the Mary Baker Eddy Library website on January 30th, 2023. Robin has a master's in theology from King's College London. She recently wrote The Faith That Motivated Nancy Astor for the Astor 100 Project, run by the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. Robin is a fellow of the Mary Baker Eddy Library. So it's great to have you with us, Robin. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to have you in the house, in this case metaphorically, as you're with us from England. Also with us is Dr. John Maiden. John is head of department and senior lecturer in religious studies at the Open University in the United Kingdom. John is author of Age of the Spirit, Charismatic Renewal, the Anglo World and Global Christianity, 1945 to 1980, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. His teaching and research expertise is modern religious history. John earned his doctorate at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Welcome, John. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I think a really interesting conversation in store. Yes, absolutely. And finally, Dr. Mike Hamilton, Executive Manager of the Mary Baker Eddy Libraries, joining the conversation. Mike holds a PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His research and writing focus is on American religions. Welcome, Mike. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Mike, in some ways, we're all here together because of you. It was your inspiration to solicit an article on the 1953-1958 Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing for web publication by the library. Why was this a subject about which you wanted some more scholarly expertise to share with readers and now with listeners? There were really two reasons, Jonathan. One was that over the years, I've come to feel really strongly that our collections include a wealth of material that traces the story of Christian science, not only within the United States and in North America, but outside the United States and North America. And one of the strongest areas of our collection is about the story of Christian science in Great Britain. Looking into another subject entirely one day, 
I came across uh, some information about the Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing from the 1950s. I'd never heard of it, but it seemed as I delved in a bit deeper that this was an important event because it showed the way in which the state church, the Church of England, interacted with Christian science and Christian scientists. And I'd become interested in seeing ways in which Christian science made its way in cultures and societies where there was an established religion, even a state church, and how Christian scientists navigated that kind of relationship. The question of divine healing, of course, is something very important to us and well represented in our collections. And this seemed a wonderful way to dig a little deeper, learn more, and broaden our understanding. Fortunately, we had a wonderful author at hand, and that was Robin. (laughs) Well, Robin, to write this article, where did you have to research? What did you have to uncover in the way of primary documents in order to fulfill Mike's request? The first place I looked at was the Internet Mm -hmm. and thought, well, where am I going to find these documents? And I was quickly taken to the Lambeth Palace Library. Now, Lambeth Palace is the sort of London centre of the Church of England. It's the place where a lot of gatherings take place for the Church of England. But they have also quite recently built an excellent library for their archives, which provides access for researchers to come in. And I read through the minutes of the meetings of this commission, uh, which was fascinating. I loved it. But there was also another place that I was able to find records, and that was the the Christian Science Church itself. Mm -hmm. And I was able to look back through the archives of those who engaged with the commission during the 1950s. I was able to find primary sources on both sides. Oh, that's great. So what was the 1953 to 1958 Archbishop's Commission on Divine Healing? It was an official commission put together by the archbishops of uh, Canterbury and York, who were the senior prelates of the Church of England. So they have regular commissions, and these commissions are set up to review key issues for the Church of England. Spiritual healing was very prevalent at the time in the 1950s. John can tell us more about that. And it was seen that the Church of England needed to do more about it. They needed to look into it more and look into their own ministry of healing. So that that's why it was drawn up. And it, it was given a few years to sit, so they took it very seriously. And they had about 25 members of the committee. The committee was made up of both uh, churchmen and doctors and psychiatrists. I sort see. of about a third a third of each. Wow. And what kind of conclusions did it come to? Well, <laughs> uh, that's a, a big question. <laughs> um, I think the main thing that I discovered from the commission was that the commission and Christian scientists came at the issue of divine healing from very different standpoints. Christian scientists thought that the commission would give them a chance to show the Church of England what Christian science had to offer. Mm. I think they felt that if they explained what Christian science healing treatment was and provided examples of uh, testimonies of healing, that they were going to get a fair hearing. 
On the other hand, what the priorities for the commission uh, were was that they felt that spiritual healing had to be medically proven or anyway, they had to have a medical basis. And they had their own fixed theological positions. They accepted Jesus's healing ministry, but acknowledged that the church was not healing in the way that Jesus taught. In the end, the report did talk specifically about Christian science, but linked it with spiritualism. They had an appendix in their report on Christian science and spiritualism, and that was difficult for Christian scientists to see. They don't see themselves as linked at all. You know, it makes me think that this whole sphere of spiritual healing and divine healing represents a kind of complicated universe. These terms can be used loosely. They can mean different things to different people. And even people as sort of educated in religious matters as archbishops apparently could get things wrong (laughs) in terms of what associations they were making, in this case, between spiritualism and Christian science, which are uh, very different. Would you be able, you know, just for the benefit of our listeners, just to give a sense of what distinguishes Christian science healing as a spiritual practice from perhaps other approaches to divine healing, spiritual healing? Yes, because you're right. People do think different things when they think about uh, Christian spiritual or divine healing. One view might be when healing is seen as collaborative with doctors or other health professionals, and it's the kind of healing that offers comfort and hope and inspiration. Sometimes it does replace medical treatment, but it's often just alongside. And then there's an opposite view. It's a sort of militant faith healing view where doctors are seen as the enemy, and these are sometimes sort of fundamentalist groups. But when choosing Christian science treatment, Christian scientists are choosing to rely on the healing power of God, but church members are always free to decide for themselves which form of treatment they turn to in any situation. So Christian science treatment involves both prayer and consecration. Sometimes Christian scientists engage a Christian science practitioner who's someone who dedicates their time to pray with those who call them. Because Christian scientists have found through their experience that healing has come about, they choose to turn to it. Well, thank you for that that explanation, Robin. John, John Maiden, when you hear Robin's account of this event that took place in the 1950s with the Archbishop's Commission. How does that fit into your work? Well, a number of years ago, I was in Lambeth Palace Library as well, researching the charismatic movement within the Church of England. Mm. And I was interested in the emergence of the charismatic movement, particularly during the 1960s or or the long 1960s, as we sometimes call it. Charismatic Christianity... Um, similar in some ways to Pentecostalism in its emphases, an emphasis on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and included in that was an emphasis on healing practices. One of the questions I was interested in is, is why does this charismatic movement emerge in the 1960s? And increasingly what I found was the the continuities in terms of healing practices and interest in healing in the Church of England. And charismatic renewal emerges, in some cases, from this seedbed 
of an interest in divine healing that has been there over many, many decades. I mean, listening to Robin talking about the, the commission, I think really the commission is a recognition of this resurgence of, of interest in divine healing over the first part of the 20th century. Charismatic renewal was a, very much a grassroots movement. But I think this commission seems very much to be in recognition of what is happening in the grassroots, which is this interest in the possibility of healing. That's so fascinating. I just want to read a couple of quotes from your book and, and then just see what our other guests think about them. This is from this earlier part of the 20th century that you were just referencing. And, and you write, in 1925, in the wake of global war and the influenza epidemic, Hensley Henson, the Anglican Bishop of Durham, observed that spiritual healing had, quote, invaded the religious world. So, Robin, Mike, and, and John, when, when you sort of think about the history of spiritual healing that you've all looked at, what does that quote mean to you when you hear this Anglican bishop making this, this observation? For me, from the Christian scientist's perspective, they would probably have seen themselves as some of the folks making that beachhead for spiritual healing, right. though acknowledging they were not the only ones who were involved in these practices. Christian science was well known in England in the early part of the 20th century. There were several key figures in the political world and in the cultural world who were Christian scientists. So it was known. Christian science healing was, was well known. For Christian scientists themselves, they did view that Jesus Christ's healing as an essential and natural part of the Christian gospel. So for them, this was just normal. This was Christianity. They believed that they were practicing Christianity as Jesus taught it. So for them, this was really good to hear. Mm. I'm sure that Hensley Hansen had in mind a whole range of healing practices. It strikes me that in the 1920 Lambeth Conference, there was a call there for the kind of rediscovery of divine healing. So I'm sure that Henson did have this kind of wider complex of practices in mind. Even in the Anglican world, you had a number of approaches to healing. You had, the kind of, I suppose, kind of sacramental approaches where um, the liturgical context was important, particular rites of healing that were often associated with Anglo-Catholics and the high church. You had thaumaturgical approaches, the kinds that we would, I suppose, associate with Pentecostal healers. But there were also experimental approaches to healing within Anglicanism, engaging with a range of psychological influences, the subconscious. And there's often crossover between these different approaches as well. So someone like Percy Dearmer, who was the president of the Guild of Health based in London, uh, he advocated, I suppose, kind of high church healing rites, but he was also interested in psychic research. There are a range of approaches to healing within Anglicanism and within, I suppose, what the bishops would have called Orthodox Christianity. But I don't think we should assume that these approaches to healing were always boxed off. There was often a crossover between sacramental or thaumaturgical or experimental approaches to healing. I think the commission of 53 to 58 would have been well aware of the interest within Anglicanism, but also of these approaches to spiritual and divine healing outside of Anglicanism. It was interesting to me that in Robin's article, one of the key figures on the commission was 
a founding member of the Society for Psychical Research. And though coming from a perhaps very different standpoint than the Christian scientists, the member of the commission who was also part of the psychical research community was one who was very willing to consider the claims of the Christian scientists where it seemed that other commission members had difficulty in bridging that. I remember, Robin, one of the fascinating things in your article was that you pointed out towards the end that the Anglicans and the Christian scientists had some difficulty in understanding each other, understanding even each other's terminology, perhaps. And yet, you had a lovely moment in the article where you said, and yet this should have been possible for the Christian (laughs) gospel burned deeply in the hearts of both Anglicans and Christian scientists. Yes, Mike. Yes, it was Reverend Morris Elliott who was the man you were talking about. It was the Christian group on psychical research, so it was not outside the Christian church. But what he wrote when the report had come out, and he actually wrote to Keith Plimmer, who was the spokesman for Christian science in this country at that time, he said, it was because the Archbishop's Commission made no attempt to try and understand what it is you and your fellows are trying to say in your own language. And words do but half reveal and half conceal the truth behind them. That in the name of fair play, honesty and justice, I could not sign that part of the report. And I thought this was such an interesting point that how they understood what had gone on when, a few years earlier, they they had actually heard a Christian scientist give evidence before them. And how they responded to that showed that they hadn't really seen what he was trying to say. They hadn't picked up on it and they hadn't taken the points that he was trying to make, or they'd interpreted it different. It was very interesting reading the minutes to see how they responded, and then looking at the report that he sent back to the Mother Church and how he felt that it went and what he said. But at the same time, while Elliot was critical of perhaps the commission, I do feel that we ourselves could have made more of an effort to understand how to communicate in this different context, in this different religious context to use language that Anglicans use rather than use Christian science language. I mean, I'm sure, John, you've picked up on this in several different religious movements. They come up with their own way of saying things and their (laughs) own way of emphasising particular words, which mean a lot to them, but perhaps mean something different to other groups. I think articulating and listening across the lines of religious traditions, but also, um, I suppose, within traditions, the kind of the the diverse approaches and sub-traditions within traditions is very complicated, very complex. I mean, you see that in ecumenical discussions that happen, um, the way that individuals speak and listen is so important. So I'm sure you're right that if the Christian scientists were not quite careful with their language, this would have raised theological and ecclesiological questions for the Anglican representatives that may have meant that they weren't heard as they wish to be heard. John, I wanted to just come back to some terminology that you used when sort of discussing 
the different experiences of healing within the Anglican Church and within other bodies. One was thaumaturgic. What, what does thaumaturgic technique in spiritual healing convey? It would tend to be centered on a person mm-hmm. and on a person who might be regarded as having a particular gifting or anointing for healing, the performance of the healing by that person. The individual concerned would say it was through the power of God, but you quite often see that approach in Pentecostal healing services and in charismatic healing services, but also amongst these very influential healers who travelled around the world in the in the 20s and the 30s, including to the United States and to India and all kinds of places, though it often happened in a sacramental context. Yeah, so John, just as you were saying, your book really brings out how divine healing within the Anglican Church and in other church bodies is associated with the performance of certain rites. So Robin, I'm just curious, do you think that was a barrier to better understanding between the Anglicans and the Christian Zionists during the commission in that Christian Zionists don't associate healing with the performance of rites or special anointings? Well, certainly the report in its conclusion really tried to reiterate that its healing ministry goes hand in hand with creed and ritual. Mm -hmm. It did emphasize that. And the reason for that is because otherwise healing is seen as too supernatural and gives rise to superstition or it becomes a psychological exercise. So they did seem to to want to pin healing down to that. But at the same time, they also felt that it was important that the church healing ministry was was grounded in medical practice as well. The commissioners wanted healing to be very much overseen by the practices of the church and the priests. That's very interesting because it's only a few years after the commission that charismatic renewal takes off in the Church of England. Now, the charismatic approach to healing tended to be with the laying on of hands where uh, one person would pray for another for their healing. But what's interesting is that the charismatic healing and charismatic ministry in general was democratized Mm. in that there was this great emphasis on all believers being able to minister to each other. Mm. Although many Anglicans who became involved in the charismatic renewal remained committed to the Church of England, the charismatic practices tended to take place in ecumenical prayer meetings, which would very often take place in in domestic settings, in people's front rooms. Very often there wouldn't be any clergy involved, but in those settings, lay Christians would practice the supernatural gifts that are discussed in the New Testament of healing, of prophecy, of words of knowledge. But in that very kind of domestic and democratized setting. So probably something that when the commission's report was produced in 1958, they didn't see coming, potentially. Mm. (laughs) There there would be this outpouring of kind of everyday healing practices in the church, but not necessarily in church buildings and not necessarily under the superintendence of of a priest. 
John, I was intrigued by this sentence in your book. Um, you, you write of it, this book relates charismatic renewal to three key themes in scholarly work on these decades, uh, the decades of, of your book, uh, 45 to 1980, secularization, cosmopolitanism, and authenticity. And it's that last concept that I'm curious about in connection to the idea of healing. Is healing seen as a prerequisite or as an indication that one is engaged in authentic Christian practice? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Jonathan. And I think there are a number of ways of thinking about authenticity in relation to charismatic Christianity, charismatic renewal. Certainly, you can relate it to those kind of cultural currents, if you like, this kind of therapeutic ethos that I think is very much um, evident in mid-century culture, this interest in the inner self and the possibility of wholeness and, and healing, I think, could be attached to that. Another way of thinking about authenticity as far as charismatics are concerned, for charismatics, the blueprint, if you like, for normal Christianity was the Acts of the Apostles. Whereas, I suppose, in say, in Reformed Christianity, there had been this notion that miraculous healing essentially ceased after the apostles of the New Testament had died out. For charismatics, actually, there had been no cessation of mm. these supernatural gifts. And that actually normal Christianity would have this supernatural dimension and that it could be expected that one might pray for another person and, and they would be healed. So uh, in that sense, authenticity for charismatics was how close is our practice of Christianity to the practice of Christianity in the New Testament? Mm. Because that is authentic Christianity as far as they're concerned. That is primitive Christianity. So therefore, the practice of healing was seen as being authentically Christian because it was a New Testament practice. Another aspect of authenticity that Christian scientists feel is quite important is, is our testimonies of healing. These testimonies of healings are uh, very much part of the ongoing practice and the encouragement to ourselves and to others of the ongoing work of Christ in our lives, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So going back to the Commission, one of the things that Christian scientists were very hopeful for, they presented testimonies of healing to the Commission and Christian scientists weren't the only people who did this. Many others presented the evidence for healing to the commission. But the report says that the commission deliberately decided not to assess the evidence for spiritual healing that was sent into them because the members of the commission were not qualified to do this. <laughs> and that was it. Right. And so so the hopes of Christian scientists and others to have a fair hearing within this commission, they just weren't met. So, Robin, John was using the word supernatural as a way of conveying the thought around healing in charismatic worship, in, in charismatic practice. How do Christian scientists think about the concept of the supernatural in relation to healing in their tradition? Christian scientists don't use that word at all. Okay. At all. So this is interesting, John. You're using this, this word as being 
evidence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, of active Christians. Charismatics often use the kind of catchphrase, if you like, to be naturally supernatural. <laughs> um, there you go. <laughs> so they are using the term supernatural, but the supernatural should be expected as a as a normal dimension of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And for charismatics, I suppose, usually that was an expectation that the Holy Spirit could be expected to turn up and do something, whether that was a healing or you know, a word of knowledge or something like that. It almost seems like the Archbishop's commission, you know, to the degree we're able to project ourselves back into that time, was confronting this not altogether new, but in some ways what might have seemed to its members like a sort of new world of thought and approaches to Christianity that in some ways they wanted to capture and maybe build into their own Christian life and in other ways that seemed to maybe not fit within any categories that they were able to accept or to process at that time. And yet, John, as you pointed out, what happened in the years after the commission issued its report in 1958 was a burst of <laughs> spiritual activity in the Church of England itself, which I don't believe the report anticipated. And yet, by the very fact that the uh, commission was constituted, commissioned, and reported, did point towards this possibility that something very different was afoot. Mm. I was only very kind of marginally aware of the commission and the report until I, I read Robin's work. And it is fascinating because it does point to these continuities in divine healing in the Church of England stretching back many, many decades. Well, this has been great having this conversation with all of you. So thank you so much, Mike, for getting this all started by uh, <laughs> getting this article written. Well, I think it must have been a move of the Spirit <laughs> yes, <absolutely. laughs> that brought it about. Yeah. Sincerely, I mean that. And yeah. so grateful to Robin for taking up the challenge and now to John for really enriching us with this broader perspective, which is helping me to see the bigger picture. Uh, I was just going to say, I just, just really appreciate and valued this time of seeing Christian science in this wider context. I think it's extraordinarily helpful. And so thank you, John, for your work. Well, and thank you, Robin and, and Jonathan and Mike. I've thoroughly enjoyed our, our chat and, and learned a great deal. Um, so maybe we can do this again sometime. Well, I hope so. And well, again, great thanks to all of you. And, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode on Ministries of Divine Healing in 20th Century Britain. Our guests were Dr. Mike Hamilton from the Mary Baker Eddy Library, independent scholar Robin Harrigan-Hussey, and Dr. John Maiden from the Open University in the United Kingdom. I hope you'll join us for our next episode when we will be looking at the life and career of Robert Peel, notably in this episode around his three-volume biography of Mary Baker Eddy, which is just being released with a new edition. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.